The question is, what about some more innovative or say a revolutionary changes? Yeah. I mean, how do you get something that totally is disruptive? It always worked that way. Now it works completely different. I'm totally confused. So maybe in the beginning, that's even bringing metrics down and it's seen as negative. But at some point, you need to bring that disruption. And also extending to a similar, but it's a slightly different, extending the user base. And I'm not saying get more of the same users, but say address a different user persona. Imagine you're a B2B health tech, you're selling into hospitals, you have optimized for nurses, and now you want to address doctors. Maybe they have completely different needs, but how do you find out? I mean, they are never in the system. You always talk to nurses only. So how can you bring that? Whereas in a more classical sales approach, you would typically, you would have some human touch point. You would meet with them. You could talk to them. You would, you know, have this conversation. If you're purely relying on the product itself, you basically you have a blind spot, essentially. Welcome to the Product People Podcast, where we learn from amazing product leaders about product management, growth, and product ops. I'm today's host, Mira Lamos, founder and CPO at Product People. Today's guest is Mario Lenz, Chief Product Officer at Highgraph, a federated content platform. Previously, he spent four years at Quenty on worker safety and environmental compliance. Mario is passionate about product-led growth in complex environments. Welcome, Mario. I'm Mirella, founder of Practical. I'm very happy that you're here recording this podcast with us and sharing skepticism on product-led growth. So my name is Mario, Mario Lenz. I actually come from engineering, so I studied computer science, have been that early stage nerd type of thing, and then moved up the engineering management ladder. I've been CTO for quite a while and about its one subsidiary, and then about Roughly 15 years ago, I very consciously decided to go all in for product management. And since then, I have been a product management leader in various companies, always B2B and typically in the scale-up mode. So scale-up companies, not very early stage, still struggling to find product market fit and also not these big corporates, but, you know, just in between. When it's all about how can we, you know, we found some valuable a product niche that we can serve our, our customers with and how can we scale it? How can we grow ourselves and, you know, help more customers? So that's me, essentially. That's an excellent sweet spot to be in and you, you have found it. Um, I as well have a background in computer science and part of my work, I've also enjoyed working quite a lot in B2B products as it feels sometimes easier to validate the need compared to consumer because businesses are relatively quite egotistical and they're going to be, okay, why does this deserve a share of my budget? I think there are pros and cons as always. Yeah. I mean, of course mm -hmm. you also, also, and in B2B, you also have the risk of, you know, this one single big customer who happened in the end to pay 80% of your revenue. So you're actually an outsourced IT department for them and not really building a product that fits a market, but it's always about distance. It's just different. I would say, yeah, I mean, particularly because I think the one that is really differentiating the one thing is really users are not biased. And from that, there is a lot of things that basically result from that, that derive from that, a lot of nuances, a lot of things that just happen to work differently than in B2C. And in this context, how would you define product-led growth? 
Regarding product-led growth, I very much like the original definition by, by West Bush. Yeah. So it's essentially saying we use the product itself. So our digital product that we ship, we use it to acquire, to activate, to monetize and to retain users. So try to minimize everything around it. I think we'll come to that later on in B2B. You still need sales, you still need consulting, you still need marketing, but try to minimize it and bring as much as possible of that entire stream into the product itself. That is how I would envision it, or I would define it, or that's the, that's the, the definition of PLG that I like the most. The heavy lifting with, yeah. with everything, even with sales, it does in a good situation, a lot of the work itself. Yeah. Yes, so do the heavy lifting or use the product as much as possible for that heavy lifting of, you know, getting customers on board and not just on board because in the end, well, you have to do a business, you have to make money, you have to do revenue, so really ends to end. And now what's your theory on this becoming popular in the last years or so? I think there are, there are two main drivers. So firstly, it's one is coming more from the customer side. I mean, as consumers, we all want to yeah. try before you buy, yeah? So when I buy a new car, of course I do a test drive before. I mean, maybe some don't, but I would sit in or I try something new. Uh, I put on new clothes before I buy them, all of that. So I try before I buy. So of course, as a customer, that's also a big, big, big benefit for me. If I can try, I don't have to believe in what sales tells me and the sales pitches. And we all know sometimes they do a little bit of overselling and overpromising. I can really feel it, smell it, touch it, experience it myself. I think that's very much from the customer side. From the vendor side, I would say there is also this big benefit of, of reduce, and particularly in today's economy, this benefit of reducing customer acquisition costs. Yeah, so I can use the product itself. For we talked about it for winning more more users for onboarding them for monetizing them. I don't rely purely on very expensive salespeople, for example, that also don't scale well and all of that. So it's a little bit of win-win in these situations where, as a customer, I get quicker time to value. I can test it. I can try before I buy, and for a vendor, and it's for cheaper. It's faster to to also onboard these new users and win new customers. Exactly. And in, in these cases, you can also focus the sales team on larger accounts where the white glove treatment is warranted, whereas it may end up hurting the margin if the sales team focuses on the accounts that don't bring in a lot of revenue. Yeah, actually, that's very good proposal here. So that is actually where the two approaches kind of go together hand in hand. So why not use the product itself to onboard users, to understand their, who are they, what are they doing? What kind of user personas on once they quantify, and it seems like they are looking for more, they are demanding more, they're building bigger teams, they are demanding more enterprise heavy features, then give it to a sales team. And then, you know, sales already has this, what is typically called product qualified lead. So the product tells me, hey, there is some candidate. They are looking for more. Give them a call. And while we're at this, well, with this example, because it's very good 
what's one key difference between sales-led approaches and product-led growth approaches? So sales, we all know these typical sales funnels. Yeah, marketing generates leads, marketing generates demands, then creates some leads which are then handed over to sales. They then qualify further. You know, it's like a funnel going down. And it's always sales is in control. Sales owns these, sales is in charge of them. They do the negotiation, they do the objection handling until very, very, very late in the process. Maybe they even do demos and very late in the process, the, the user, the customer only gets the real tool, the product, the software in their hands. So it's very long and only then the, the customer uses the tool. Whereas the product-led growth, it's exactly the other way around. Or at least ideally, it's the other way around. You find something, you try it out, maybe in some spare time, maybe in whatever, however, you maybe it's some word of mouth. Your colleague working in another company in a similar role as you talked about that, and you try it out, and then you start using it, and then sales takes over. So it's really, where does the initial touch point come from? Is it always sales and control and in charge and running and guiding the buyer side of the customer? Or is it customers, actually maybe even users of the customer trying out themselves? So that's what I would say is the key difference. And now the interesting part of this, where we criticize some product-led growth. So where do you see product-led growth coming in? I think, I mean, and that is Probably because of my background of where I worked in the past. So basically, I was always working, as we said in the intro, you know, in B2B, basically enterprise B2B. And the last companies I worked with, actually all of them, had some kind of, you know, even when they were in completely different market, but they always shared some, some commonality. So first of all, they were very much top-down decision-making processes. Secondly, and that was specifically true, for example, in my last role at Quintic, where we were doing a lot of, you know, occupational safety, the, the compliance needs were very high. So if it's very important, where is my data? How is it secured? Where is it stored? What about data privacy? All of that. I mean, there's no way that, that you can really start it again from a grassroots technique. We've had cases where people wanted to work with us for our interim roles, but due to not being already onboarded as a vendor, for example, we couldn't because it's like, well, purchasing blew us off and we're not boarding new vendors. See whoever you have here. Maybe this company invoices you to an existing vendor, yeah. which sounds more mind-blowing for me as a founder because it's like, why wouldn't you want the best for your company? Like if the purchasing team is employed with you to do the best. But indeed, that, that has been a stakeholder. We've also had HR compliance as a stakeholder domain security. So it's kind of similar that we've also noticed the same problems of a B2B SaaS with product people with B2B professional services on this end. Yeah. Maybe that's now that you're describing it in that way, I would say it's often the case, say, when some kind of central procurement team is involved. Because in the end, I mean, to be honest, they barely care about the best product, best for users, but you know, they want to tick their boxes. They have an RFP and they know they want to check is it compliant here and compliant there and do you fulfill these needs and that needs and check, check. That's what they have to do. They don't get into the details of what the, what the job is all about. Yeah, when you think about the job to be done framework and probably also they are very risk averse. Nobody ever gets tired for buying IBM. Mm -hmm. of, I'm fine. I bought the vendor. They are whitelisted. I'm not guilty for anything that goes wrong. So these situations, I would say pure play PLG, we might still later discuss some combination, but pure play PLG will, will come short. 
agree with these examples that they're super good. So wherever you have a lot of red tape and gatekeeper require a wide glove approach. And maybe a third dimension that I would say is also a critic. When your actual users that you're targeting are typically digital native users. When you're in marketing, when you're in product management, when you're in e-commerce, whatever, you're always on. You have five monitors. But what if you're a construction worker? I always love to call it people with oily fingers. Hard head, gloves on. You're not always on. You're not trying digital tools all day. In fact, you're kind of even annoyed by that. Because after a hard and, and rightfully so, yep. right? Because a lot of this digital end up so. being more complex than they should. So in a way, I, I side with the frontline work on the. And in that situation, it will be very hard. You know that users, oily finger workers, they start something or they try something. I mean, they won't. Yeah, I mean, probably after a hard shift at you know as a roofer or whatever. They will go home, turn on the TV, watch women's soccer championship and drink a beer. They will not take their tablet and browse for digital solution. Yeah. In, in more to back to vulnerable labor group like this one. Yep. Exactly. So these are again, down decision-making compliance. And then are your users, are they really these, you know, digitally, how digitally Skilled are your users? This, this is also a major criterion. And, and how motivated, right? Like, was there intrinsic motivation? Because maybe if it's something to request a vacation or a day off, they would bother going through the UI. Hey, if you're enjoying this Product People podcast, check out our weekly live streams on LinkedIn and YouTube. Back to the episode. What are the risks then you see product-led introducing in these cases? where it's not necessarily a fit that you gave previously. What is the whole idea of PLG? You want to optimize the product so that you serve the user, but if you don't get the user on board, if they are not motivated, how do you get them on board? When you think of this typical growth flywheel, I mean, how do you go get that flywheel moving? Ah, that's basically the, the key thing that I see here. Also, it will be very difficult specifically in these situations, to find the right metric. Well, it's all about you want to improve the onboarding, the activation, the retention, yada, yada, yada. And for that, you want to observe users. So you need to understand what metric really shows value for users and not value for I make more money, but it's valuable, shows more benefits for the users. And what is a good metric? So finding the right metric is definitely a risk. Another risk we touched upon already a, a bit earlier is, of course, the internal friction that I would see. I mean, particularly, I experienced it somewhat. We already have a certain growth stage. You have a very strong sales leadership and account management and customer success. And now you want to bring in PLG. You need to be very careful that really sales still is your friend. So it's basically, you need to also find better ways to, to organize Absolutely. And this were also on this topic where some at some point to make this transition and to be friendly with sales, we realized they weren't touching some accounts that they scored very low on either the probability to convert or the value of the deal. And we said, how about we email these accounts and try to activate them or try to nudge them into the product? while not spending your time on it, because you're definitely what? won't have the capacity. You've collected them. But you won't call them, you won't touch them, you just mark them as uninteresting leads. So there's, there's some way to to help them. There's another CPO of a B2B company that does integration who told me he's also joining a lot of the more important deals 
closer to the end uh, or yeah. when, when the contract needs to be renewed because he wants to show that from the company side, product really cares about that client and showing is like, hey, it's not just the salesperson promising you thing, he's the CPO of the company here with you and trying to understand your problem, your needs and what, what you're planning to do next. Like for one of the clients, the problem was that they didn't want to rely on one vendor. Yeah. Right, which was also very interesting insight. They basically wanted to have multiple vendors that did the same thing okay. so they can use them as fallback solutions then, because they they didn't want to rely on the availability of a third party or their accuracy. Yeah, yeah. That's basically one side or that's exactly the other direction that the product side would join into these enterprise sales deals. At least say the very important one, the strategic ones where you also need to show up as a, as a product leader. And again, very good proposal that you recommended for the other side. So again, regarding your question, that is, I think, what you have to be very careful because otherwise there's a certain risk of, you know, creating friction inside the company, which is not intended, but still. I would say to some degree, this is also part of the incentives because everyone in the company should be incentivized to do the best for that company, not be, not, not having perverse incentives. Mm -hmm. But again, I understand during the transition period, how do you handle this for sales, which are used to having 50% of their compensation in the commissions that they're made and still get the credit for these commissions, even if they're doing less heavy lifting there. Let's say we're in the more ideal stage where the product does the heavy lifting and the company is more product led. What do you see as potential? risks of being too dependent on the product for growth. The question is, what about some more innovative or say a revolutionary changes? Yeah. I mean, how do you get something that totally is disruptive? It always worked that way. Now it works completely different. I'm totally confused. So maybe in the beginning, that's even bringing metrics down and it's seen as negative, but at some point you need to bring that disruption and also extending to a similar, but it's a slightly different extending the user base. And I'm not saying get more of the same users, but say address a different user persona. Imagine you're a B2B health tech, you're selling into hospitals, you have optimized for nurses, and now you want to address doctors. Maybe they have completely different needs, but how do you find out? I mean, they are never in the system. You always talk to nurses only. So how can you bring that? Whereas in a more classical sales approach, you would typically, you would have some human touch point, you would meet with them, you could talk to them, you would, you know, have this conversation. If you're purely relying on the product itself, you basically you have a blind spot. And that's a, the good segue. Basically, also the role of the PM will change or together with the salesperson that they will need to do lots of active and proactive discovery for new essences to go into or other things to do because otherwise they just oil the same machine, but then they don't have the bandwidth or the insights to go into something different and research it really deeply. Fully agree, but to what extent is that, is that PLG specific? I mean, I'm a big fan of discovery anyways. I mean, as you know, you know, I heavily implemented that at Quintic. So I would even say, even if you don't do PLG, you need a hell of attention on discovery. So that's, so I fully agree to that statement. I just don't see it, you know, PLG specific. Not necessarily, but if you're more sales led, then sales does to some extent the discovery for you because they test the willingness to pay. If the client has decided to pay for something you didn't have and you sold it to them. So as much as PMs like to complain about salespeople, I've seen in some companies, they do a lot of the heavy and they could be leveraged as a source 
source of knowledge. Whereas if you're just PLG, then you need to hunt for your own food, right? Yeah. There won't be like someone coming in and saying, hey, here are these large hospital accounts where we discover that we can upsell another batch of users for doctors, right? It would be like, you need to be like the business side and think about that and say, okay, now we're what's the next logical approach as we're already working as a vendor with this type of customer to, to these other employee groups that they yeah. have. And, and if you're a pure play, PLG player, PLG vendor, then of course you're, you're lacking that sales and account management and there's no touch point to doctors to stay with that example for a moment here. No touch point to doctors so you don't know about them. You're blind and that. Then the product team needs to get out and needs to see what's going on. Maybe observe the nurses and realize the nurses are talking to doctors all the time. So maybe there's something to it. When you already have an active sales team, of course, they will bring that message across. And we did know this. One of our clients did staff scheduling for companies like larger cafe chains, where you need to cover tour shift with people. And later they sold to hospital to cover shifts for nurses, which you'd think it's kind of different, but you still have a certain amount of shifts, a certain budget that you need to cover, some capacity planning. There was a bit of the skill set and other things, but that was somehow possible due to the sales team coming in and, and bringing some large hospitals. And it was during COVID where anything digital that could improve a little bit on Whereas cafes had a problem of being closed down yeah. due to COVID. And in hindsight, it was a bit stressful for the product team. We were helping there as interims to come in as like, we were doing this, now we're doing that. And hospitals come in with a few legacy systems and you know how it is with larger companies, but it was a benefit for that client as now they have an even more stable customer with a recurring need because hospitals will always need to schedule nurses, whereas cafe chains can also do with fewer shifts, can also do with a bit more of inefficiencies here and there. Yeah, and have, you know, less qualified people and can get a student to, you know, bring the coffee. That's yeah, it, it depends like what what's their appetite for maintaining the, the brand known for quality. And you're right, medical staff, you can be cute and bring people that don't have certain qualifications. I'm curious to dive now into product market scalability as product market fit is a must have before deploying PLG tactics, but you can also lose product market fit or it can, the market can slightly move. So how would you guard against losing product market fit and the team staying on topic while applying product-led growth tactics? I think it's very similar to what we just discussed. You still need to keep an eye on everything else that is going on. I mean, whatever you observe in your product and what you use doing mm -hmm. in your product, you're still inside that bubble, inside your own ecosystem. So of course you have to observe what's going on legislation-wise. Maybe maybe there's some new you know, compliance needs. Maybe there are some totally other new competition appearing that bring up some new revolutionary approach to it. So yes, I mean, as specifically as a product team, you can not just rely. I mean, if you're sitting there, you've implemented product-led growth and you're just sitting and watching your data coming in and nothing else. I mean, obviously then you're, that's a very risky position. What you, what you have to do. And also, and that's not just the, the, again, the technology side, new vendors coming up with new, new products or the legislation side. I would also say it comes to, and maybe that relates also to what we discussed earlier, specifically when the company itself, I mean, you have a certain market fit in a certain product market fit, 
in a certain area, in a certain niche, in a certain market. So also meaning not, not just industry segment wise, but also say in terms of the size of the company. So are you, you know, typical consumer? Are you these very small companies? Are you more this mid market or enterprise market? And the moment you move along that chain and say move either from lower market to the enterprise up market or down market, then you also need to change that a lot and watch out for product markets. It's actually, you, you have a new market then. So you need, basically you could say you need to find your product market fit, so to speak. And actually a famous example that I love to cite for that is actually when you take a look at what happened to Slack, mm -hmm. I just don't want to beat Slack. I mean, it's a great product. They're still growing and they're a very healthy and very great company. But still, you know, Microsoft outpaced them. And I believe it's because of a different distribution model. It's just included in the package, it's the box. We are already partnering with Microsoft. Hey, I do see all of big corporation. We're already using Microsoft all over the place. Why should we not use Teams? Of course we're using it. Why should we go for yet another vendor? And then it even comes for free or at a much reduced pricing and all of that, mm -hmm. obviously. Like has some struggle to at least get into these large enterprise markets where say large enterprise markets that are Microsoft shops. Yeah. There's also this problem with Google. I wondered when they sold to Salesforce, why didn't Google buy them? Because that was a feel felt like the logical solution. Maybe with that also doing a bit of a segue into mergers and acquisitions, because this is also a way to add other product portfolios. And I think you have also some experience with the previous company you've been at being acquired and then integrated into a larger one as part of their business units. So, so what are your thoughts? into navigating this landscape, which we also see more and more common at our clients, either them buying companies, selling their company to another one. I think that depends very much on a process can happen on two levels. So one is more the organizational level. That is what happened with Quintic. So Quintic was acquired by a bigger company, but the product itself remains more or less standalone. Yes, over time, there will be some mm -hmm. integrations. But it will be very loosely coupled. Yeah, Quintic, it was more the organizational and it's a different ownership of the company. But the product, even the brand and all of that we will remain at least for a certain amount of time, as far as I know. Mm -hmm. uh, so in that sense, that, that would not be affected. So basically the same users would use the same product. And so you could still do or not do PLG depending on what you, what you did before. Of course, it's different when the product gets fully, you know, embedded in the, so you can actually benefit from that a lot. And then of course, grow with that and take the learnings from that and bring it to the, to the rest and step by step to the rest of the, the platform itself. That's what I would imagine it was more on the organizational change that happened, but not so much the product itself. I mean, it's the same product team now, it's the same brand, same distribution, same, yeah, no change there. Okay, so, so a very lightweight integration. Yeah, very new. And then the other option would be where the company that's bought is fully absorbed and integrated within the other. This has been an example we, we've seen a few times and you can have it with the tech being wild, white labor and everything around that. But for the consumers or clients, it looks like they're still interacting with the brand that they were used to. This has also been 
more common in B2C brands because it has all, all the tractions and people have the app and they're just used to going to a particular brand or website. But behind that, it, it can be just the same company where you're looking for hotels that has been long ago sold to something else. Or I was back at Carta Bonial, which is weekly offers regularly from supermarkets or digitalizing the IKEA brochure. And they bought their competitor, they white labeled the pick under it and just kept the apps and websites going with just a note internally that, hey, the user has access this URL or that URL, mm -hmm. serve them brand number one or brand number two. And then for the B2B customers, now there was an extra thing they could buy. They could buy exposure on brand number one and or exposure mm -hmm. on um, brand number two with a bit of a different audience based on location and purchase preferences. Yeah. So, so one, one of the parts where the, the product dissolved into the existing one to, to a large degree with some modification and you have a white label running everything. At, at another a client of ours bought a DSNCs and then they set this up as a separate business unit with some work to integrate them. So it sounds a bit similar to Quentic, but everyone then just gets set up on that company Slack, on those accounts, the product will be now sold as a brand of that company. And everyone in the now acquired product teams need to start playing the same way the other product teams work. And, and that was a good choice for that specific growth unorganically through all of these aggressive acquisitions, which means that you have tons of people showing up on Slack every other week and everyone is used to doing OKRs differently or some don't do OKRs, some do just like a North Star. Some people are used to giving a terse Slack update on what they're doing. Others write a three-pager. So all of these practices and products needed to then be harmonized into how are we all going to work with each other now that we're at the same company and how do we have visibility on the goals and how can we benefit from that? The first type of integration that you talked about, that is more similar to what happened in Quantic in 2017, 2018, when Quantic acquired NordSafety, which then became the, the mobile app of Quantic. That was really pure M&A uh, activity. I mean, it was not really PLG back then, but that was very similar. So there we also kept basically the, the app itself for, say, the small-scale customers who said, well... We don't need the full-blown platform, just a smaller app is good enough for us. And then we kept it. I mean, behind the scenes, we were integrating some stuff, of course, you know, you don't really want to have two-time administration things and user management and all of that. But beyond that, basically, we kept the two things aside. And then as a customer, you could decide of, I go either with this or with that, or I want to have both of them. So that's what also happened there on the, on the integration side. But again, that was... What is it now? Five years ago, so and maybe we were not even aware of product-led growth back then, so that's why. So Mario, what do you see happening in product-led growth next? Well, what are the trends you're observing? Yeah, what I see recently is there is, on the one hand, there is a little bit of realism coming in. So exactly the discussion we had over the last couple of minutes. You know, when does it apply? When is it not applicable? It's specifically how does PLG, how does product-led growth, how, how can it be combined with more classical 
sales-led growth approaches. And I see two trends here. One is, of course, the classic part. You do the product, you use the product, what we touched upon earlier. You use the product to acquire users and qualify them and then hand over to a sales team. Hey, they are promising prospects, so take care of them and, and try to sell to them. And the other direction that I see is specifically in the situations where users, where it's really hard to get these users into the tool, is more like you land in a classical sales-led approach, you sell into the to the customer, and then you expand using product-led growth tools. So, for example, you observe your users that have been acquired using classical sales-led approaches. You observe them that they are doing a certain thing, that they want a certain functionality, that they want more data, certain products. So you recommend some kind of upsell, cross-sell, expansion. So that is the, the other trend that I see. And I think the combinations of the two, you know, SLG, PLG, this is what I, what I see a lot. And I also read that a lot, you know, in, when you go to Substack or LinkedIn or other, other posts, what, what other thought leaders in the industry also discuss about. Amazing. And with that, we can also conclude and ask people where they can find you after this podcast. Yeah, probably the easiest way is probably on LinkedIn, as probably most of us or just Mario Lenz. I think it should be very, I should be very easy to find there. Cool. We'll also share the link to your LinkedIn yeah. with our podcast. Thanks so much for your time. It was amazing. Thank you, Megala. Great conversation. I love that. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to this Product People podcast. If you found it useful, please subscribe and consider giving us a rating. For more info, visit getproductpeople.com and see you next time.